And I am Pastor Jim, and uh, so grateful to see all of you here this morning. Uh, we're in a series right now in which we are seeking to carefully listen to what our culture is talking about so that we as Jesus followers can be equipped to engage these cultural conversations with the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those conversations that's really, uh, man, it's just in the newspapers all the time and, uh, uh, and all the news stations, all those things, one of those conversations right now is about the value and the roles of women. And in Jesus' day, uh, women were marginalized. Uh, they were some t very often unnoticed. They were sort of blotted out sometimes. They were way in the background, secondary, secondary citizens. And a lot of times in Jesus' day, women were actually being abused. And the sad thing is that 21 centuries later, we live in a world and in a society where a lot of those things are still taking place. And so we who have grace and truth of Jesus Christ, Jesus spoke into that conversation in the first century, and we want to be his church and be faithful to speak into this conversation in the 21st century. And so that's what our topic is this morning. Our topic is the role, the place of women. What does Jesus say in his word about women? And um, I'm excited to introduce our guest speaker here this morning. Her name is Anna Sadler. Uh, she is with her husband, co-pastor of student ministries at Elevation Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And in addition to that, she is also the sister of our very own Pastor Randy. Uh, and I think that's, that's great. And uh, so we're, we're just very excited to have Anna here with us today. And uh, I've asked her as she comes to share just a little bit more about herself with us, and then she's gonna get right into God's word on this topic here this morning. So let's welcome Anna as she comes this morning. Thank you guys. Um, it's such an honor to be here. Um, it's an honor to see my little brother uh, be all grown up and make all these fancy videos and stuff. I'm like, who is this guy, man? It's not my little brother anymore. We used to like fight over Barbies and GI Joes. Um, anyway, sorry, Randy, had to do it. <laughs> so we grew up pastor's kids, and which means our dad told embarrassing stories about us all the time. So now that we get microphones in church, we get to tell all kinds of embarrassing stories. I've spoken at my dad's church before too, and I tell embarrassing stories about him there too to get him back. Okay. So a uh, little bit about me as I get my technology set up here. Um, so I was born to pastors, grew up in a pastor's family, um, and I decided when I was like, I think I was like nine, that one day I wanted to grow up and marry like this great guy who was probably like a plumber or something, and we would go and we'd go to church every Sunday, you know, and we'd be really good Christian people but have nothing to do with ministry. And I was like, I just don't want that life, man. 
And then I ended up meeting and marrying a pastor. And then I ended up getting licensed as a pastor myself. And now my brother's, and just can't get away from it, man. So something's in the blood or something. But anyway, I do love it now. And I'm very grateful that God has chosen us to be part of his church in this way. Um, I went to school at Indiana Wesleyan for psychology. I have a degree in psychology. You can't get much of a job unless you have a master's degree in psychology, though. So, But I have a lot of head knowledge from psychology textbooks, which is fun. Um, and then, I, like I said, I met and married my husband right after college, and we went and took on a student pastoring job. He was doing that, and I was doing small groups at the church we went to after that. And we recently... Um, we are at a different church now, and we, like Pastor said, we are co-leading the student ministry there together, and we recently started as foster parents. We have two little foster kiddos here with us today, and their brother and sister, and we are en route to have a, an adoptive placement come in soon, so we are excited about that. We drove up late after meeting him for the first time last night. So we're very excited about um, how our fostering and adoptive family is looking, and we just love being part. It's very difficult, but we do love being able to show the gospel to the world in that way through adoption and fostering and God's love in that way. Um, let's see, is there anything else about me? Fun stuff. I like writing, and I have a 100-pound lap dog. He's the best. He's huge, and he's definitely taller than me when he tries to stand his paws up on my shoulders. He's like up here, but he's great. Um, so today I have been gifted the challenging and wonderful privilege of talking to you about women. So I got the topic, and I'm like, women, okay, that's like, what, 50, 60% of the whole population? Very vague topic, okay? Um, but then as we talked more about what this series was going to be about, um, I started getting really excited because this has been a journey for me, myself, um, really, I would say throughout my whole life, because when I was maybe six years old, I go into the church in my dad's office, and I set my hands across his table like this, and I say, Daddy, Jesus is not coming back until I get married, because I know I'm going to be a wife, and I, like, my very young, I was like, this is it, like, this is who I am as a female, and I, like, I had all of these ideas, and I was told from a young age, Anna, you're a leader, you have leadership ability, blah, 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 but I didn't see very many strong leading women in a front row capacity in my life, so I didn't really know what that meant, and then the ones I would see on TV were often talked bad about, or like they hated men, or they treated men poorly, and so I was like, well, if I'm a strong woman leader, but those are the strong women leaders, I don't want anything to do with it. And so it's been a really long process for me personally, just knowing, okay, what does it mean to be a woman in this world with all the different roles and different things and different stereotypes that there are? And actually, when my husband and I first met and we're talking, one of our very first conversations, he asked me, so what are your dreams for the future? And I said, well, I'd like to be a professional wife and mom. <laughs> that is literally what I said. And I described myself at the time as anti-feminist. So I was like way off on this far off side of the spectrum. And over my journey of trying to find out what God really thinks about it, and then not only what God thinks about it, but how what he thinks fits into our current culture, I'd say I'm a little bit more in the middle of the spectrum. Middle of the spectrum is good. Um, so... So really what we're talking about today is how did Jesus talk about women? And so as I was looking through um, the Gospels and Jesus' life here, 
found out he didn't really say much about women. He just treated women the same as he treated all the men. He didn't really have teachings on, hello, everyone, this is how you should treat the women in your life. That didn't come up tons. The apostles talked about it later. Paul had a lot to say about it. But Jesus really just lived, and he treated women the same as he treated men. But the way he treated the women was not at all the way his culture treated them, and so it got noticed and picked up on. So there are a lot of women written about from the stories of Jesus more than other writings from the time because Jesus did kind of outrageous things with women for his day. So he really did turn the tide. Um, So not only, so since Jesus acted more than he talked, not only should we be slow to speak and quick to listen when it comes to this topic, but even as we gain understanding about what Jesus really did think and how he acted with women, I think even so, we should maybe bite our tongue on our opinions a little more and act a little more, live it out a little more than talk about it. And I know that's hard for me. I like talking about it. It's fun. If I have someone who listens, I will talk about it. But Jesus didn't always do that. So we need to follow Jesus' example. Now, first thing before we get into everything today is that this particular issue of women's role or women's leadership, it's not a theological hill to die on. Okay, it's a secondary theological issue. The primary theological issue is salvation. Jesus, God's son, came to earth, died for our sins, rose again so that we could have a full life and spend forever with him and bring as many people along in our journey as possible. That's the theological hill to die on. This one, we can have disagreements, we can have opinions, but the point is it's still an important thing to discuss and to have these conversations about because it affects so many people. It really, when you come down to it, it affects everyone. It doesn't just affect females, but it affects the men in their life. It affects how men and women treat women, so women to each other and men to women. And it ultimately affects how we bring others along in our journey towards that number one theological issue. Because the way we treat women or think of women can ultimately impact whether others want to have anything to do with us and what we're talking about. So that's why it's still important, even though it is okay to have varying opinions and disagree. So I have five areas today that I see when we're looking through the New Testament and Jesus' interactions specifically towards women. So what we see in Jesus' interactions towards women first is that the current belief systems of the time were confronted. So the, the best story to me in the Bible that really talks about Jesus elevating the role of women is the resurrection. And what better story? I mean, that's the best story in the whole Bible. So in the resurrection, in all four Gospels, if it's repeated in all four Gospels, it means not only it for sure happened, but it was really important because everyone wanted to talk about it. And it's not just a blip. In all four Gospels, it details out this part. It said the women were the first ones to see the tomb empty, The women were the first ones the angel and Jesus appeared to, and the women were the ones who were told to go tell the apostles. So in that way, women were the apostles to the apostles because they were the first to tell the full gospel story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And they told it to a bunch of men, and it actually says what the women were saying was nonsense to them. And I just think that, okay, come on, you guys got to laugh. I mean, come on. How many men think your wife is just over here talking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. Are you even listening? What did I just say? So <laughs> it sounds like nonsense to them because at the time, 
not only like what we're just laughing about, but at the time, women were considered unfit witnesses to even stand up in court. They were considered so not credible of a source that they couldn't testify in court. It would not hold water at all. It wasn't considered solid evidence. And even so, Jesus entrusted something very unbelievable to incredible witnesses is what he did. So he is really trying to make a huge point saying, hey, women are credible too. (laughs) Women have value too. Women have a role because they were like lower than They might have had less rights than slaves. I'm not sure at the time. Um, Pretty low. Um, We also see later on that Jesus approaches a woman. So this is the first part of scripture that we're going to dive into. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. It's the story often called the woman at the well. It says, starting in verse 7, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. So here we not only see that Jesus approaches a woman, which later down the disciples are like, what are you doing? Like they come back and see he's talking to a woman and they're like calling him out, like rebuking Jesus for what he's doing. And they're like, what are you doing? Why are you talking to a woman, one, and two, a Samaritan, which was a mixed breed race at the time. They looked so low on them because they weren't Jews. They weren't the chosen ones. And so not only was it a woman, but someone of an inferior race, an inferior social class, and she had had four husbands. So at the time, that was also considered extremely low. So she was not upper class. She was not fancy, nothing. And he approached her, starts this conversation with her, and it's one of, if not the longest conversations that we see recorded of Jesus in the Bible. Not like his teachings, but his conversations with people. It's the longest, there's a lot of back and forth that goes on. She goes on to end up evangelizing her whole town. She goes home and she tells everyone about everything that happened. Jesus comes and everyone believes. And that's the type of person that he chose to do, someone who people did not think highly of, and he entrusted the story of eternity with her. So as we're thinking in this conversations series about how Jesus treated others and the way in which he did it, what he had to say and how he said it, we need to look at what are our current belief systems about women. This is the one that I have the longest things, the longest list of for what our current belief systems are about women. We have that oftentimes women's opinions are not equally valued, especially we see this in the workplace. Um, I have friends of mine who are bosses and managers in their workplace, they're women, and they have told me they do feel they have to work extra hard and they have to try and be buddy-buddy friends with their employees or else they will be looked at as mom or as inappropriate words (laughs) instead because they're too emotional or because they're a female. So she has to try to act buddy-buddy and then also work twice as hard to prove herself to get her opinions valued and to be held in any sort of authority. Um, We also have a belief system 
um, that probably a lot of us have, and we wouldn't say we have it, but we do. And it could be we have one or the other of these, or we have both at the same time. And that is that you're not a strong woman if you stay home with your kids because you're giving up on your career. Or the flip side, you're not a good mom if you pursue a career and let your kids go to daycare or after school or stay home or whatever. And we have that conflicting view and many hold to both of those, not really realizing that you're really putting women in an impossible position. Like, okay, I'll just never have kids and never reproduce and miss out on that whole thing. But um, it's just this double standard that we have going on. Um, has to be able to do it all, the superwoman or supermom. We have to be able to keep the house completely clean, care for our husband, care for our children, pursue a career, all of the things that has to have a really good volunteer life on the side, plus time to rest and self-care. Don't forget that. Got to have a gym membership and yoga time and hot tubs and saunas and everything else. No time, absolutely no time with meal prepping these days. Um, and then when do you ever get a chance to look at Pinterest for new recipes? You're just going to have the old recipes all the time. And then your house will never be decorated because you can't see Chip and Joanna on HGTV to know exactly how to get shiplap. Like, what even is shiplap? Um, but I think it look to me it looks like wood paneling that's a different color. But I'm just not that girl. So anyway, so we have to do it all. But we still only have 24 hours in a day, right? Then we have this other one, that if a woman is a victim of abuse, she was either weak or she was asking for it. Let me tell you, no one is ever asking for abuse. Can I just put a cork in that one right now? No one is ever asking for abuse. There are, sometimes people are not educated and put themselves in compromising situations on accident because they do not know that this is not a safe place or certain people are unsafe. Sometimes it's not even that. And there are just people out there. We live in a broken, fallen world. And there are sinful people. We all are. Some of us have had no protective factors in our lives. And so it's just, frankly, it's not a safe world. It doesn't mean that anyone was ever asking for abuse. Um, so then how do we confront these beliefs that we have? Oh, one more. I had an example from my own life. Is I was at a church conference with my husband, and there was like three or four couples of us sitting around a table. And me and my husband, like I said, are co-pastors. We had another couple with us. Um, the husband was a volunteer worship pastor at church, and his wife was on staff, finishing up a period on staff at a mega church in Indianapolis with multi-thousands of people. And she was on staff full-time as a worship pastor. And this guy started going around the table and asking all the men, what do you do at the church? What do you do at the church? What do you do at the church? And then to the woman, how many kids do you have? How many kids do you have? And I'm like, you know you have several women here who are employed in leadership roles at churches. <laughs> like, we still, like, yes, my children are important to me. That I appreciate you asking. But also, my husband is not the only one who has a role and is investing in lives for eternity beyond just those in our home. Um, and that's just an example of some of the ways that these kinds of unconscious belief systems play out. So a couple of ways that we can confront these belief systems in our world. Number one, assume that God has called women to something in addition to, or in some cases other than, marriage and motherhood. Not every woman gets married and has children. And not every woman, that is their only call. But also with that, we need to assume that fatherhood and being a husband is just as important as motherhood and being a wife. Because oftentimes, for some reason, we don't 
articulate this, but for some reason, the man's job is more important than his time and quality investment in his home. And yet women have to either do both perfectly well or that's their number one and nothing else can come through. Now, I will say my number one calling is to my husband first, my children second, and then to my ministry calling without that. My husband and my children are my first ministry. That was modeled to me by my parents in ministry. They said that to us verbally all the time. And then my calling and career ministry-wise or work-wise is below that. But my husband says the same thing, and he does the same thing, and he makes sure that people know that that's the same and that that holds true. Number two, recognize, call out, and give opportunity to gift seen in all of your congregation or employees or workplace, not just the men. Look for, if you have to be a little bit more active because of personal biases that you maybe don't know you have, then that's fine. But look at everyone. What gifts does everyone have, and how can that be used? You will have a better team because of it if you really open up your eyes to all people and their gifts. Number three, respect women for both their choice to stay home and have kids or their choice to have a career. Either way, they're having to make some sort of a sacrifice. Um, When we started fostering, I was working full time and I just recently quit my job to stay home and both have been sacrifices. Um, Both have had, I had the slightly more flexible job, so I was the one who would have to call off work to go home when the kids were sick or we got a new placement last minute or we had to schedule all the doctor's appointments and my work was, it was difficult to keep my work going how I needed it to go to be a perfect employee. But then when I quit, it's also like I quit right before summer, so I have kids at home for the first time ever all day long for summer. That's also a sacrifice, let me tell you. You moms out there know, right? You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I'm sure some of you dads do too. There's good dads too. I'm not saying. Do not hear what I am not saying. There are excellent men and women, and I just did a gender stereotype by saying you moms know what I'm talking about. So I'm apologizing to you, and I am being an example of how we have unconscious gender bias. All right, you get my point. Next, actively seek for both sides of the story in abuse cases. Do not automatically assume that someone was asking for it. And understand that our culture, we have a nature of sexualization and objectification. In the movies we watch, movie producers specifically put sexual abuse and rape scenes right next to scenes of violence because they are they are conditioning us to match those two together so that when we're in, we have the emotional feelings of love or sex or whatever also paired with violence. And so that is being paired together. Just take a look at almost any video games. You get rewarded for things like that. Um, so be careful what your input is and understand what our culture is. Also, what do you laugh at? I heard someone say once you can tell the character of a person by what they laugh at. What do you find funny? What types of jokes do you find funny? Because if you find it funny, then um, stepping on toes, but that shows a little bit of who you are and what you deem is okay and acceptable because you think it's funny. Also, lastly on this one, still speak with your culture in mind so as not to be a stumbling block. So for instance, a joke about something that seems harmless could um, unintentionally cut down a woman or influence another man or woman's opinion of women or their relationships with men and women. So keep that in mind. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 33, I won't go into it now, but it talks about um, 
everything is allowed, but not everything is advisable. Does that make sense? We have freedom in Christ, so everything, not everything, but it says it up here. I try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. So it's not just about what feels good for us or, well, I am not sexualizing women. I'm just making a funny joke. Well, it might end up hurting someone else and their view of women. Number two, stereotypes of women are broken when we look at the way Jesus interacted. If you can go with me to Luke chapter 10. Uh, starting in verse 38, this is the famous story of Mary and Martha. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. In this story, it would have been notable to anyone reading it at the time that Mary was in the man's space, and Martha was simply asking her to come back into the woman's space. Men were often not allowed in the kitchen for those preparations, just like women were often not allowed in the place of teachers to study. They weren't educated, they weren't sent to school, so they weren't allowed in the place. Now, we often think um, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, dewy-eyed, just dazing up at this handsome rabbi, teaching her things and falling in love, but really she was studying. The word used originally, it means she was studying and learning. So what Jesus is saying here is, Mary has chosen the better thing means Mary wants to make time herself to know God more and to study God. And it is right for her, woman or not, it is right for her to be able to learn who God is on her own. Um, so Mary invaded, N.T. Wright, a New Testament theologian, he says Mary invaded the male space. And Jesus said she belongs here. She's chosen the better thing. Women need to be given time to learn from God like men do. She was studying at his feet. Um, that was a little bit more culture at the time, so we're going to look at how this um, moves in. Now, one of, um, one of the more controversial New Testament passages that's brought up that people will say, well, this means women shouldn't be leading or speaking out in church is 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. And I'm not going to go into all of it here, um, but there are two different ways that New Testament scholars who believe the Bible um, interpret this. One is that this passage was spoken to all churches for all time and that this is how it should be in all of our churches today. Another way that it is translated is that um, it was written to a specific church in a specific culture for a specific time. Um, I will read just the first couple verses. It says in verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Um, so in another translation, it says women should not assume authority. 1 Timothy is most commonly believed to have been written to a church in Ephesus. And what we know most historically about Ephesus at the time is there is, was a temple there, which is still standing to this day, and it was a female-only cult. So the main religion in that town of that day was only females. And so now this new religion is coming into town. There's a new church there. Women are probably being converted. 
men in town are being converted. They're forming this new church. And there are probably women stepping in and starting to assume authority over the men because they had a flip-flopped view from what we stereotypically see in the, the gender um, order hierarchy. They had a flip-flop one. So the women were coming in and assuming authority. And he's saying, do not assume authority the way men have assumed authority over you or the way you have in your uh, female-only cult. What is supposed to be happening is the mutual submission and the mutual leadership and us all working together as a church body. Now, the Assemblies of God, who this church is a part of and the church that I grew up in, traditionally hold to this second um, belief that it was written to a specific um, church for a specific culture and time and that we can still apply these principles today. Um, but as we'll see in a minute, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instruction on what women should do when they prophesy in church. So Paul, it wouldn't make a lot of sense in my mind for Paul to be saying, women can't talk in church, but when you do, this is what you should do. Um, he was trying to clarify what was going on in that city with that church. So common current <coughs> female stereotypes. I talked a little bit about too emotional to be a boss. There's also one important one because I know so many people in my life who this has affected is the stereotype that women have low sex drive as opposed to men having high sex drive. And the reason I want to bring this up, even if one or the other side might be more typical, the fact is we're just in a sexualized culture, period, not just sexualizing women. It also sexualizes men. And there are a lot of women that I know who struggle with feeling like their needs by their husband are not met, as we traditionally have heard is the case for men from their wives. And I know a lot of women who struggle with pornography addiction, not just men. And oftentimes in the church, we stereotype that it is just the men who struggle with these types of sins. And so women then will feel shame or like something is wrong with them because they're the ones struggling with this instead of being a man. Like, why am I a woman struggling with a man's sin? And that's just not the case. It's just like I said, we're in a fallen, broken world, and sin affects us all. And so we need to really make sure that we do not generalize a certain type of sin just to one gender because it leaves out those who need healing and restoration who are going through something, but it's not being spoken to them. Number three, when we look at the way Jesus um, spoke with women and interacted with women is that inequalities are leveled. In the Mary and Martha story, again, we saw that um, female entering a male world was um, said she belonged there. This is a place for you as well. I want you to learn. Um, I want you to be able to study and know God regardless of gender. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, this is another one where New Testament scholars have two different views. It says, in verse 34, women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Now, again, um, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, who was going through a lot of things. They were going through a lot of um, disorder in their church gatherings, and they were going through a lot of sin specific people they were allowing to continue in sin within their church and specific leaders they were allowing to continue in sin in their church. So Paul had written this very long letter to them trying to correct and encourage and teach them. 
And in this particular couple of chapters here, he's talking about order in the church. He's talking about God as a God of order and not chaos. And we see all those verses leading into this passage. A really important historical um, thing to know at the time is that, um, like I said before, women were not allowed to be educated. So men were taught in the classical language of the time. Women only knew the common on the street dialects. In the religious gatherings, the classical language of the time is what was taught. And so the women didn't even understand what was being said. It's quite uh, possible and probable that the women were starting to talk amongst themselves, either because they were bored because someone is yammering on in another language, or because they were trying to figure out what was going on and talk. So they were probably trying to ask their husband, what's he saying? What's he talking about? Or ask the other woman, what are you cooking for dinner when we get home? And it was probably very common based on knowing that in history that um, the leader who was teaching would probably say, hey, can we have some quiet across the room on the women's side over here? And this was Paul trying to say, he, he goes on to say, husbands, you need to make sure that you tell your wives at home what is going on because they need to know too. Just because your culture doesn't educate them doesn't mean they don't need to be able to learn about God but again, a couple chapters before that in 1 Corinthians 11, it's talking about the head coverings and men need to not have head coverings and women need to have head coverings, all of that. And he's talking about when women, so it's in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 4 and 5, when women are prophesying, when women are prophesying, speaking out in front of the church, teaching in front of the church, speaking on behalf of God in front of the church is what prophesying is then women need to cover their heads. So it's not saying today we all need to be wearing headdresses and fancy hats. It's saying today that if a woman is speaking in the church, this is the way she should do it for their cultural context. It was saying to still look like a woman, still look like a man, respect that we have gender differences and that God made us that way in beautiful ways. So he was concerned about what the church is looking like to outsiders who do not understand what's going on and that it's still fit within the cultural norms and understanding, but to they are still allowed to speak. So um, the other way that New Testament uh, scholars interpret this is that it was spoken to for all time, for all churches and all places, and that we should all wear head coverings currently as we speak in church or that we should all be quiet and submissive and not teach. And um, apparently, since I'm up here right now, this church holds traditionally to the fact that women can speak um, in churches in that way. Um, so current inequalities that need to be leveled is leadership opportunities in the church and society, pay inequality. How do we level these? Advocate within your workplace. If it's within your power to make a difference and a change in your workplace, do so. Um, Again, keep an eye out for both men and women who have gifts and leadership abilities. Promote them, train them, empower them, and give them opportunity. And then lastly, I just want to talk quickly about how this all translates to marriage. So number four is marriage means something different for gender. And there's probably a whole bunch of better ways that I could word that, but that is where I landed. And we've talked about the church sphere. We've talked about the work We've talked about the societal sphere, political sphere. Well, then there's the marriage sphere. And in marriage is where our differences as two different genders comes out most for obvious reasons. And I think God very intentionally meant it to be that way. In 
all of the Bible, there is not much talk besides the verses we specifically just addressed. There is not much talk about any sort of difference between men and women in their roles for any other sphere except marriage. And even then, there we'll go into it. There is not a, a huge thing. I'm just, just let me explain it before I say all that. So in marriage, the most important thing is that marriage is made specifically designed intentionally and beautifully to be a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. No other sphere is designed specifically to be a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. Does that make sense? Well, you can't answer, you can't answer me. Does that make sense? I'm going to explain. Um, Ephesians 5.21 talks about husband is the head of the wife. We've heard a lot. Uh, wives submit to your husbands. And I want to read this because it is just so important to know exactly what say what is what he is saying here. In Ephesians chapter five, if I can pull it up on my phone here. The very first verse starts with you are to mutually submit to one another. This is the very first verse. Nothing specifically to husbands nothing specifically to wives, and we normally start our teachings on marriage with the next verse and skip that one. So it's very important that we address that, mutually submit to one another. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church, as the church submits to Christ. So you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, to explain this point, I honestly just would like to read you a quote by your pastor, because as we were talking about this, he described the headship role of the husband within marriage in the most beautiful way I've ever heard it articulated. So I would really like to read to you what his description of this was. He said, I do believe that there is a headship role of men in marriage rooted in self-giving love though this doesn't in any way prevent a woman from any area of calling or ministry, including pastoring, leading, etc. Loving headship equals ultimate leadership responsibility of husband, but rooted in his recognizing the full equality of his wife and seeking first the well-being and total flourishing of his wife and all the gifts and callings of God, which may include all doors of leadership in church and society. Headship closes no doors. It is simply a role of leadership among equals, as on a football team. The quarterback has a responsibility to make decisions, but if he is wise, he will listen to the ideas of the other team members. 99.9% .9 of all decisions in a healthy marriage are made between husband and wife in a co-leader way. In those rare times when agreement can't be reached but a decision can't be made, the husband has to quarterback it and make the call, but should do so in the best interests of his wife and family. 
In a healthy marriage, hopefully, you are working on your communication with each other, and you can communicate in a way in which you can work through big decisions and come to an agreement. And for those moments, like he said, where you can't come to an agreement, that is when it's saying here, when it says the husband is the head, that he makes the ultimate choice there. But it's about mutual submission with Jesus and the church example to follow. Marriage, husband and wife, was patterned after Jesus and the church, not Jesus and the church patterned after husband and wife. So Jesus is the head of the church. And then everyone in this church all work together in various roles and positions. But Jesus is the head, not a man the head of this church. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. Man is selected as the head in marriage simply because God uses that imagery of a male for himself throughout the scripture. And all it means is that they're given the responsibility to lead a woman in mutual submission, but not the power to assert over her. Wife is to be protected because of her value, not because of her weakness. So how do we apply this one? Just do all that that passage says, both sides. Not just cherry picking the sides for what wives should do, but also do the sides for what men should do. Lay your life down for your wife, and wives, respect your husbands. Lastly, just in Romans 16, I would encourage you to read through that. Paul is reading through a huge list of people that he's thanking. He talks about Junia, who's an apostle, who's well-respected among the apostles. Phoebe, who is a deaconess, um, which is oftentimes in a pastoral type of role in the day. It talks about Aquila and Priscilla, who were co-pastors of a church that met in their home. Oftentimes, Aquila or a Priscilla, the wife is even mentioned before or without her husband, which culturally speaking is remarkable for the day. Um, so there are just many, many women that are brought out. Uh, Deborah was a judge who led the whole entire nation of Israel into war in the Old Testament. Um, so we see so many examples, despite what the culture was of the day, we see so many examples where God, the church, and Jesus call out women to be able to be accepted among men in leadership roles so that they can fulfill their calling. So if we are to be Christians, which means little Christs, how does this change the way we believe, think, and act in our daily lives? How does this play into your marriage, into your parenting, into your work, your gifts that God's given you, your ministry, your political and social interactions, your relationship with God? How does this knowledge of the way Jesus treated and spoke to women impact the way you treat and speak to men and women in your life? Jesus elevated the view of women not just because they were devalued in their day, but because it was Jesus' M.O. to elevate everyone who was devalued, regardless of gender, regardless of social class, regardless of race. It didn't matter what they had been told all their lives. It didn't matter what they told themselves. What I loved about that first song that we sang today was, I am who you say I am. And that is all that matters. It doesn't matter what the world, people, or yourself have told you about who you are all that matters is who Jesus says you are because he worked double time and overtime to elevate everyone who the world said was worthless. If you guys could close your eyes and bow your heads with me. Today, if you feel like you have spoken negative words over yourself or you have negative beliefs of yourself for any and every reason that might come to mind, that you feel like you do not have an important role, you do not have an important calling or purpose. Maybe people have told you you're worthless. The world tells you you can't be used in where you feel you're gifted in. Whatever it is, 
Jesus has a better plan for you. He says he can do immeasurably more than anything we could ask or ever imagine. If you want to know that Jesus, that Jesus who, whose MO it is to elevate the weak and the oppressed and the belittled, if you don't have that type of a relationship with him yet and you would like to, today is your day, today is for you, and I would love to pray with you. If that's you today, on the count of three, I'd like you to raise your hand just so that I can pray with you today. One, two, three. Thank you. Awesome, guys. So many wanting to know Jesus. Or you can put your hands down, and I'm going to pray together. If everyone could just pray this prayer together as we join with those who want to know this Jesus and get to know him better and be more like him. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love everyone. Even when the world says I'm unlovable, you do extra to show me you love. I recognize where I'm not perfect, and I want you to come be strength in my weakness. I give my life to you today. Help me know you better and be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if everyone could keep your eyes closed again, if you are here and you just want to know Jesus more, you want to know more about what he has to say about all these conversations we've been having in these series, just pray along with me today. Jesus, we love you. We love you so much. We thank you for who you are and how you impacted this world, how you were unafraid of anything. You didn't have to stick with cultural norms or this world. Give us the same boldness paired with kindness, grace, and love to affect change in this world for you so that you can be king of this world, not our fear of what others may think, not our fear of who we are or aren't going to be, but that we would have confidence in who you've designed us to be, that we would have the strength to walk in that by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to thank Anna for sharing God's word with us today in a beautiful, powerful way. Anna, that, that meant a lot to us all. Uh, and if you prayed that prayer this morning to invite Jesus into your life, uh, I first of all want to be the first one to say congratulations to making the most important decision you will ever make in this world. And we are here to try to help you in that. If you made that decision today uh, on the Connect card, circle that, write us a little note, and give us your contact information. And <clears throat> we will be in touch with you to help you. And we also have uh, Bibles at the information desk today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can have one free. Just stop there and ask the person at the desk that you would like to have a Bible to take with you. Um, so, Anna, thanks again for addressing, uh, I think, very eloquently, a really tough topic. Praise God for that. <clears throat>